Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 77, John 11 in A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, or LizaNarberGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Gloss Table Girl on Reddit. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on Twitter. We are making this episode happen right now. Yes, absolutely. I'm listening to Eliana speak into my ear on a phone. It sounds like a radio caller. <laughs> Hello, caller. Does. What's your issue? Uh, my internet. My internet is not working, <laughs> but here we are. <sighs> you guys, we took a little break, gave you some time to catch up, and here we are. After tonight's Jon Snow episode, we will have two Jon episodes left until he dies. <laughs> Man, remember when we thought we were going to be done with John in, like, September or October? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. Thanks for reminding me. Yep. We were such sweet summer children. Literally, it was summertime when we thought we all sure these were. things. We sure were. And, you know, honestly, uh, we started off doing a bunch of the double episodes, which uh, we haven't announced our new POV yet. Stay tuned for that in the next couple weeks. We didn't want to be too heavy-handed with the hinting. So uh, just, you know. Pay attention, you might hear a couple things here and there, some clues. But in the meantime, uh, we're finishing up with John, and it just got so lengthy, right? Like, we went from doing these double two-chapter episodes to, oh, no, I guess things actually happen here. (laughs) I mean, a lot of them are pretty dense. Like, I've been noticing that a lot of these John chapters in dance, it feels like, what, he goes through four different encounters through them, like in the last one. He goes through three of them. It'll be like, I don't know, person, right? And then like mm-hmm. talking to Axel and then maybe talking to Celise and then going and talking to yeah. Bowen and whomever. And here this one, it's like Dormant, Val, Celise, Bowen. Bowen, you know? Yeah. The boomer gang. Yeah, at the end, every single time. And. I mean, it's, they're dense, you know, because you're covering a lot of different things happening. Yeah, uh, mixed in with a bunch of exposition and world building for the free folk, which there's tons of here, and mixed in with a lot of foreshadowing. Uh, tons of foreshadowing, in my opinion, for stuff to come. So I am excited to dig into this chapter. Actually, when we started outlining and talking about different things in this chapter together, I was like, oh shit, this is like a really good chapter. There is a lot to talk about. It's thick. Yeah, a lot of things do happen. I think, you know, I was talking about this with um, some folks, like, you know, on our our friends on the Nauticast podcast, right? And some of the other uh, Reddit mods and, like, it feels as though, to me, I kind of get why people think, I don't, I don't agree. Like, I think that dance has a lot of really strong thematic work going on that I can see how people might find maybe John and Danny's chapters boring. I don't think that's the case, but for both of them, right, you can see that as we've been going through a lot of these John chapters, a lot of them hit the same thematic note, if that makes sense. They're rehashing the same issue, but I mean, it's always coming at the problem in new ways, and I think here's where things start picking up after Alice Karstark shows up. I was actually speaking with one of our friends from the Nauticast podcast, Jeff, about this chapter just a little bit ago. Um, it's it's a crazy night. We're all doing John tonight. Wow. Yep. It Lude. is. 
uh, the boys of Not A Cast podcast are doing John 3 in Clash, is it, I think? Something like that, John 3. Uh, so they're doing John, we're doing John. It's just a flat-out mess in here. Sinful mess. And uh, they, Jeff was talking about how some of John's last chapters were very, very, very rushed because of the cadence of how George had to get the chapters to the editor and that you know each time he got them in he was like there's just one more john chapter and of course we know what happens in that john chapter uh he kind of had to rush and fill in the blanks in between so i think that might explain a lot of that do it all over again the same plot but in a different location with different people thing going on with john and truly uh, maybe it's just this chapter we're about to discuss but i really did feel the growth in this chapter um i felt john like actually politically paying attention to what he needed to do, how he needed to speak, how he needed to win certain people over. And uh, it's different from the boy that sat on the bench at the feast, drunk and mad, you know? For sure. He's now the person on the other end of the table. And he's trying to make space for other people at the table, too. Absolutely. And it's not easy. And apparently when you try to stick up for good people and good things, sometimes you get killed. Yeah. Looking at you, Kevin Spacey's accusers. Um, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> All four of them. What? Um, well, that have come out. And so, of course, we know that John 13 is the last chapter for Jon Snow because he dies in this chapter. And he's dead. And that's it. That's the end for John. John dies at the end. But we're really excited because that chapter, which is still two episodes away, next week we will have John 12 for you. But John 13, we have a guest coming on. We do have a special guest. And I'm quite excited for this one. This is another one of our good friends, of course. But from a long time back, she's she's a big played a big role in your fandom life. Right, Chloe? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, she really got me into A Song of Ice and Fire Twitter. It is our very good friend, the Lady Shelly. If you follow her, Shelly. Uh, if you guys have a Facebook, you might know the meme page the page of many faces she was uh the weeping woman on the page of many faces when it was more active and yeah the lady shelly on twitter the biggest pats fan in the world and arguably the biggest john snow fan in the world so we couldn't end john without having shelly on for an episode we really could not shelly's great um i've had the opportunity to to also meet her in person and i think she's part of how you and i like came to know one another too so exciting yeah, to bring it all like together and yeah, she really is we, a very big fan. Because of your blog fan. name, right? Uh, yeah. Is that I when asked, you and I became friends? <laughs> is that when we spoke? I don't know. I think we, oh, it no. was just something random on Twitter. But it might have had to do with, like, makeup and the Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I relate to both these things. Hardcore. The foundation of any friendship. <laughs> Literally foundation. <laughs> the undertones of our friendship. But Speaking of foundational friendship, really excited to have Shelly on. But we do have more content coming to you this month, not just Jonisodes. Not as good as Netisodes, not at all. Uh, we have an episode of our His Dark Materials series continuing on. We are starting The Subtle Knife. We are. And so The Subtle Knife is book two, of course, of the His Dark Materials series which as many of you know we started a read through of and we of course just finished wrapping up our coverage of the first season which actually has a little bit of stuff from the subtle knife so fun stuff but 
We're going to try and keep our read-through for The Subtle Knife, same as we were doing with The Golden Compass, where the first part is mostly spoiler-free, and then we have a discussion at the end. A discussion for those of you who have not finished the extraneous books, The Books of Dust. Uh, there's a dusty discussion at the very end where I discuss... I discuss. But discuss. I, uh, that's a lot of discussing. Uh, but we also have a regular discussion for those of you that have not yet read The Amber Spyglass. But if you are like I am, I expect you guys will have sped ahead while you waited for us to finish, uh, finish the season and get back into it. So stay tuned for that. And... We also have a Patreon episode coming to you guys this month. Yeah, we can actually announce this one early this time because we, you guys, this is, this is big for us. We had an idea for this Patreon episode like a whole month before <laughs> we even did it. Like, look at us. Maybe we're growing. 2020. Maybe it's our year. Maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> New Year, same us. <laughs> yeah, actually, same us. But, so we do have a Patreon episode. Uh, our our and if you haven't checked it out, of course, if you like his dark materials, our previous Patreon episode for December closing out twenty nineteen was about the lantern slides that are at the end of the three main books of his dark materials. Yeah, and that was a really fun episode to explore those lantern slides because it turned out you and I were looking at different lantern slides. <laughs> Which I only found out, like, an <sighs> hour before. before or less. Making magic. But thank you for listening to that, patrons. A reminder that all of our patrons, $5 and up, do get to listen to a special episode, their ears only. Uh, check that out, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. But this month we are doing in a Song of Ice and Fire themed episode for our Song of Ice and Fire Patreon fans. And we are doing an episode about the Maiden Vault era of Targaryens. So this is going to include Elena, Reyna, and Diana Targaryen, uh, and Aegon the Unworthy, Aegon the Fourth, and of, and of course, course Baylor. Baylor. And maybe we'll even talk a little bit on, about Aemon the Dragon Knight. Maybe even Darren. Wow. A lot of people that can be discussed around the Maiden Vault. Yes. Lots lots to do in the Maiden Vault. And who else better to visit the Maiden Vault with than us? So feel free to tune in with us again. Patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We give you a special patron-only episode every month. Check it out. Yes. And I mean, like... You know, we have these Patreon episodes, but along with that, there's something to celebrate that's not just the new year. We touched on this a little in our previous Patreon episode, but you guys, we have 100 public episodes, including this one, now 101. Like Dalmatians. Yes. Each one of these <laughs> episodes, a small puppy. Oh, I wish. We did 67 public episodes last year. That's wild. That's really crazy. Why did we do that? I don't that's crazy. Know. Now that I think, now that you say it like that, I'm like, that's more than there are weeks. That's yeah, that's more than one a week. We uh, I think obviously the his dark materials episodes we really doubled up on as we got closer, put our nose to the grind. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. A hundred one public Dalmatians. That is, whew, mind blowing. I'm gonna Wolf. call them Dalmatians now. So in a hundred more, I'm gonna be like, we have two hundred one public Dalmatians. 2019, the year that marks the Dalmatians of podcasts. <laughs> These Dalmatians are out of control. <laughs> but 
We'd got an email from our good friend, Michael Yaney, and he said, I was just reading John 8, A Game of Thrones, and in the narration, John says something described as stupidly. This reminded me of John 3 when he stupidly argued with Benjen and your analysis of it. I began to think about how it's interesting that John chapters have multiple instances of this in the narration and how each character's narration fits their perspective. I then did a search of stupidly, and it only comes up nine times in all five books. Six times it is used to describe someone slash something else. Two times in John. The only other time it is used in narration to describe the POV is Sansa 1, A Storm of Swords. I don't think it necessarily means anything, but I think it would be really cool if you did a Patreon episode analyzing how the POVs affect their own narrative style and the similarity slash contrast between different characters. Oh, I like that a lot. It actually reminds me of this panel from 2017 Ice and Fire Con. I want to say it was Poor Quentin and Butterfly from A Song of Ice and Fire University on Tumblr. And they did a panel about following like the the POV as a camera. So like Quentin and Sansa, for example, are really good camera lenses to view stories through and see different things through. And it was just such interesting work. And I think the way that we are reading this story, reading it in a linear POV chapter by POV chapter way, is a lot different, obviously, than just reading the books and highlights a lot of those things. I know we talk about John and Sansa pretty often just because they have similar themes in some of these chapters. And of course, John and Theon and John and the character that's coming up next, which I cannot tell you yet. Um, But... That'd be a fun episode. I have a lot of ideas. So we might have another yeah. patron episode to write, Eliana. Wow, we look at us. 2020. Maybe it really is a new year and new us. But uh, yeah, and I mean, along with what you're saying, and that it's worth noting that George has said that the POVs that are hardest for him to write seem to be brand the younger POVs, because of course, he's trying to get into the sort of mindset that yeah. a child might have. And so how does that manifest, right, in the writing? What does he do to call out that this is a younger perspective or a child versus some of the older ones that we have? Yeah, different framework he uses. Uh, we see a lot of similar devices in Ned chapters and John chapters, right, and Sansa chapters where mm-hmm. we start in the middle of the chapter and they spend a lot of time in their head and the words they say out loud are very calculated, Uh, Things like that and some of the framework that they use on themselves. I love exploring that. So we'll definitely do some exploring of that in the future. It could be interesting exploring, yeah, some of those older PVs. Like even like Barristan, John Connington, all these people with regrets. So anyways, sorry, this is going to go in an episode apparently one day. So (laughs) got to try and like hold back. Ready to rip right here. (laughs) Thanks for sending us an email on that, Michael. You guys, if you ever want to send us an email and just chat, talk about your day, send us pictures of your animals, send us memes, uh, talk about characters, you can do that. We have an email address, girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, at gmail.com, or you can send us a message or a tweet over at Twitter, same name, girlsgonecanon. Yes. But... While you think about anything you might want to say, we do have a lightning round. A lightning round. Zap, first zap. up. First up. First, first up. First 2020. <laughs> I'm like doing some sit-ups. It's our first 2020 <laughs> lightning round. All right. Daenerys 7. 
On the eve of the grand reopening of the fighting pits, Daenerys entertains with her husband Hisdar at a feast for Myrony's nobles. She then consults with Barristan about the Dornish visitors. She lets Hisdar take her in their marriage bed. Theon won. Theon takes a giant leap to Faith, taking back his name and Jane's because you have to remember your name. <sighs> the crowd goes wild. <sighs> fist bumps, fist bumps, vuvuzelas, <laughs> pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Daenerys 12. Blood brings the dragon to the pit. And we're not just talking about Daenerys, but Drogon as well. Damn, you know it's getting close to the end of the book when you have the dragon pit scene. Yeah, damn, where are we? We're here at John 11, where the overview is John treats with Tormund, allowing 4,000 free folk to pass the wall in exchange for a healthy number of hostages to Castle Black. The men of the Watch aren't happy with John's decision, and the winds of winter blow even harder. He was not a tall man, Tormund Giant's Bane, but the gods had given him a broad chest and massive belly. Mance Raider had named him Tormund Hornblower for the power of his lungs, and was wont to say that Tormund could laugh the snow off mountaintops. In his wrath, his bellows reminded John of a mammoth trumpeting. That day, Tormund bellowed often and loudly. So, this Hornblower thing is interesting. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts about this. Our our good friend Elena, actually, the Bear Air on Twitter, Daisy Mormont, if you've seen her around, she also is a small council member over at Ice and FireCon, which you guys should come hang out with us at if Eliana's not busy sleeping during it. I do it a lot of napping. There's a lot of people that time. I miss out on meeting because yeah. I was, I don't know, napping somewhere. Every time they're like, Chloe, where's Eliana? And I'm like, I don't know, asleep. I don't know. But, it's a. It's like a weekend. Of course, I'm napping. It's a holiday. It's a holiday weekend. It's a vacation. It is You're supposed to relax. <laughs> so Elena has talked a lot about torment and the Horn of Jorman, and she talks about the Book of Joshua. How on the seventh day of the Battle of Jericho, the priests walked round the walls seven times and blew their horns to bring the walls down and slaughtered every living creature inside, other than Rahab, who helped their spies survive. While we may have seen a horn that's magical, burnt along with Rattleshirt in place of Mance Raider, Tormund swears up and down it wasn't the Horn of Winter and that it's out there still. A lot of people theorize Euron's horn is a dragon horn that he found in Old Valyria, or is it the horn to bring the wall down? She doesn't subscribe to that theory. She thinks it's hidden somewhere in the north, and I, I agree with that. I think it might even be at Hardhome, since Tormund is going to Hardhome. But uh, since the wall's already coming down... Tormund probably is going to do it, and not for bad, right? It's going to be because he's leading the Free Folk as King Beyond the Wall, helping the Stark King, Jon Snow, bring down the others to save Westeros from another long night, just like the stories go with Joramin. And I think there's a lot in the books that can support this theory. I mean, Tormund himself literally resembles a rune-laden horn from the very first time we meet him to the chapter we're reading. There's the line in John 1 in A Storm of Swords, Thick gold bands graven with runes bound his massive arms, and he wore a heavy shirt of black ringmail that could have only come from a dead ranger. And of course, in this chapter, we see the armbands again, solid gold, heavy, engraved with first men ancient runes. Tormund had worn them as long as John had known him, and they seemed as much a part of him as his beard. So I think it's very interesting that his body is shaped almost literally the way the horn is described, right? Like thick, like an aurochs with gold runes laden on the horn, just like Tormund. 
And there are other echoes of this plot, right? Uh, in John 2, in A Storm of Swords, he wonders if Mance had given Tormund Thunderfist the horn to blow. Uh, he In Bran 4, A Storm of Swords, we learn from the stories that Bran has learned from as a child that he brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries, he bound his brothers to his will. For thirteen years they ruled, knight's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Joramin of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. And next chapter, we get a line where John is thinking of Joramin blowing the horn of winter and waking giants from the earth. And he then he wonders, is Tormund lying to him, or was Mance lying to him then? If Mance's horn was just a feint, where is the true horn? I mean, Tormund's name is literally Hornblower from Mance, right? I think it's safe to say there's a giant flashing arrow saying Tormund going at us right now, but how does it happen, right? Maybe it's crisis mode when the others are attacking. I just, I don't see him obviously doing it for funsies, and I don't see him betraying John at this point. No, he doesn't seem like he's going to betray John. I think, so something that I'm thinking right now is like, you know how we aren't necessarily convinced that all the prophecies of like Azor High, the prince that was promised, and all those mm-hmm. are necessarily like the same person. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, or maybe we'll never know. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's the whole thing, right, of the horn that wakes the sleepers. We have like a dragon binder horn, and maybe there are just like a bunch of different horns. Like, it could be that torment in this role of German, right? Maybe there's a horn that wakes the sleepers because I do still think that there's significance behind Sam, right, of Horn Hill and the history of their family and mm-hmm. him having that small nondescript horn being mm-hmm. of some sort of significance. You know? I can see that. Yeah. It's like a bunch of different horns. But I think that, like, uh, there, there's definitely something of what you're saying of an echo of like Jorman and you know a Lord Commander slash Stark right. of Winterfell doing something what, reuniting again to what extent is it is really the question yeah and yeah. for what there's definitely yeah. something turn Literally down the, for what the Jorman story oh I mean their names sound like each other like it's just a little too close for comfort here yeah, but I mean, George also does like making names that sound the same. and Yeah, for fun. Are literally the same. Yeah, he does like to do it for fun, to give a sense of realism or whatever to his story. Right, right. Anyway, so Tormund does show up to the wall. He downs his drinking horn, different horn. He throws it at John. Yells at John. I... Who hasn't done this before to their friends? You know, sprays him with mead from his mouth, calls him a lying craven. Finally, hours later, they are on talking terms. This is true friendship. I know, like, who hasn't thrown? I, and ideally an empty cup, right? Every now and then. I mean, like, everyone wants to throw things at John, too. Let's be that's real. That's true. That's true. And I think it's such a great contrast to see the relationship between, like, the one that John has with his quote-unquote brothers here at the wall, mm-hmm. who are, like, kind of polite to his face for the most part, somewhat. They're somewhat civil, but they're stabbing him in the back, literally, whereas here, you know, Tormund's just, like, insulting him and telling him how he fucking sucks right to his face. 
And I, I think it also helps to show us that despite the Night's Watch thinking that John is like fully wildling and only has loyalties to them, well, turns out the wildlings don't quite forgive John for everything either. They're like, well, a shit ton of our people died because you betrayed us. Yeah, absolutely. Tormund shakes hands with John. He asks the gods to forgive him because there are a hundred mothers who never will. John repeats the words of his vows in his head. I am the sword in the darkness. I'm the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold. The light that brings the dawn. The horn that wakes the sleepers. The shield that guards the realms of men. And for him, a new refrain. I am the god who opened the gates and let the foe march through. So this isn't the first time we're going to hear the oath in this very chapter, which I guess kind of gives it a sense of continuity. But here's a wild thought about John being the guard who opened the gates. The person who came to mind for me in this moment is Maester Paisal opening the gates for Tywin. Oh, I wouldn't have actually thought of that at first, but it's it's kind of fitting. I, I like, mean, like that. I don't know that it it goes poorly for John, right? It doesn't it's probably not going to go poorly yeah. in the way that like it did for Maester Paisal and King's Landing, right? The, not think, this time. Yeah, George is showing different ways that, like, the different circumstances can change it. But, like, I mean, they must have been thinking the same thing. Like, the impetus behind it is obviously the same. Like, I trust this person and I think that what they're doing is right. Or I I am Mm -hmm. stuck in my convictions. Because obviously, Maester Pycelle, for reasons that I still don't fully understand. Like, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. But also, at the same time, I'm like, no, you're wrong. I get it, but you're wrong, Maester Bicel. Why he would be like, I believe in Tywin's vision. It's a wrong vision, but... <laughs> right, like this time it's the exact opposite problem that John actually has the right idea and no one agrees. <laughs> actually, that's true. Literally no one agrees. Literally no one agrees. Just like no one would probably agree about opening the gates for Tywin, to be fair. That's like, true. Maester Bicel, what is wrong with you? That's true. Well, I mean, Eris was like, you know what? Sure. Kind of. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Anyways, John worries that he isn't doing the right thing. Maester Pycelle. Did he worry about that? Debatable. <laughs> Probably not. John knows that they're past the point of return, though. Tormund is skinnier and older than the last time John saw him. And Tormund also says that, you know what? Man should have killed you when he could have. Yep. <laughs> and asks what happened to the sweet boy that he knew. And John tells him, well, they made him Lord Commander. This is interesting because it's been, what, like one to two years tops a year since they've seen each other? I think and less, less than that. Even less than that. And Tormund looks older than the last time John saw him. I mean, he is, obviously. But, like, very much so older. Like, he notices deeper crow's feet on his face. Uh, talk about weathering, right? They're They're running from the others, fighting, drinking to stay warm. Like, 20 hours a day, right? And to dull the pain and to enjoy their miserable lives right now, running from the others. Kind of shitty, especially when we learn about the trauma that Tormund's undergone in this time. Yeah. Really shitty. And like I said, John's not just a little emo boy in love with Egret anymore. He's a grown man. He's a commander. He's parlaying. He meets enemies in the field. He's leading. Definitely a big show of it here. Yeah, and I mean, I can see how, I wonder if this was supposed to be slated for what, like, after a five-year gap, or if this was going to be, like, a flashback on it, 
when George had that because it obviously makes sense for someone to be like, you don't look like a little boy anymore five years later, right? Or for Tormund right. to look drastically changed. But I mean, it works here too because as you said, you can really see how that battle's taken its toll. Mm-hmm. They discuss how their people will feel betrayed from this deal. And Tormund pulls his solid gold armbands off and gives them to John as a first payment passed down from his grandfather and father. John immediately feels guilty and says, maybe you should keep them, man, because Tycho's just going to melt them down. But Tormund says, no, he doesn't want it said that he did not do his part to forge a new life for his people. Yeah, it's a good show of leadership on Tormund's part that he would be the first one to give up his riches if he would ask the same of those who are following him. Yeah, a lot of Ned's lessons that we see John demonstrate in text tend to be echoed when it comes to some of these free folk leaders like Tormund or like Mance. And I think that's why John obviously respects them, uh, because they do what they think is right. Even if John doesn't always agree, they do what they think is right to protect their people. But Tormund does say he wants to keep his cock ring, which is much bigger than his armbands. So I think he got away, you know, from this one. All right. Yeah, he's, in in this way, you know, he's very different from Ned, right? He, Tormund jokes, Tormund talks about his trauma yeah. openly. Very openly. And yeah. it is, it's great how he slips into it, right? It's a nice character moment because John says to Tormund, ah, you haven't changed. And Tormund's like, actually, John, I really have. I've seen a lot of death. Things kind of suck. And, um, oh, my son's died. Dormund was cut down in the battle for the wall, and him still half a boy. What are your king's knights did for him? Some bastard all in grey steel with moths upon his shield. I saw the cut, but my boy was dead before I reached him. And Torwind! It was the cold claimed him. Always sickly, that one. He just up and died one night. The worst of it, before we ever knew he died, he rose pale with them blue eyes. Had to see him myself. That was hard, John. Tears shone in his eyes. He wasn't much of a man, truth be told, but he'd been a little boy once and I loved him. Mm, Torment. I know. Uh, hard. Yep. Sucks. More like, it's hard, man. And we're seeing the other side here with all this, right? Like, just as the Night's Watch and the Northmen have been telling John over and over and over again in the past few chapters, like, we lost people, the wildlings killed our friends. Well, guess what? Turns out, as we all know and have been discussing the previous chapters, it's the same for the Free Folk... Also, throwing it out there, it was Richard Horp uh, who killed Tormund's son. We we know this because of the gray steel and the moths upon the shield. Fuck that guy. He's not great. Just saying. There's some yeah. interesting. I think there's something interesting going on with Richard Thorpe for like the story, right? But uh, he mm-hmm. sucks. Not interesting enough to me. Fuck him. But I do think it's interesting. Just putting this out here. Tormund had to kill someone that he loved with his entire existence because they turned inhumane. Hmm. Just gonna put that on the table real soft. Anyways. You know, I know that it's still up in the air, right? 
now that like things have been released and people are questioning it again whether or not John oh, will yeah, be the whatever. one stabs in Daenerys. But in the show, they had uh, Tyrion kind of goading John. It would be interesting if it were Tormund instead. Hmm. I could see in that. that I, I mean, I think Tormund's definitely going to have a bigger role as far as what he does in the Free Folk. I mean, they, they gave him pretty much the role probably in the show that works, but I could say that we're going to see a lot more of it in the books. Yeah. Well, Tormund still has two sons alive, though, and his daughter Munda lives as well. She was actually married off to Longspear Rick. Tormund threatened to rip off Rick's cock and beat him with it if he didn't treat Munda well. And uh, Tormund is basically the dad with the gun. That's what this is. Like, he would be sitting yeah. there like, nah, you're gonna take my daughter out, are ya? <laughs> like, that's who Tormund is. Yeah, that's who Tormund's being right now. Absolutely. Which, yeah. <laughs> Tormund says that it's time John got back to his men, and John makes it business first. He repeats their deal, logistics, dawn, three days from now, the boys first. Tormund is like, I roll, we'll be there, and the mammoths will be sure to take the long way around. Yeah. Uh, there's a line here that Tormund says, he's like, I'll make sure there's no fighting, they're rushing at your bloody gate, nice and orderly will be ducklings in a row, and me, the mother duck. First of all, I think George had a thing for ducks going on in dance. It should have been really called a dance for duck gods, or maybe a duck for dragons. Unsure. Um, between Ooh, duck on Tarly? Ooh, duck on Tarly. That's a good idea. Someone should make that. <laughs> between this and the, like, the rolly duck field stuff, right? But also, as you said, duck on Tarly. Coincidence? I think not. Quack, quack. Second, Tormund <laughs> promises <laughs> no damage. <laughs> I didn't think it was that you? funny. I'm just laughing because you thought it was funny. I thought it was horrible. I love it. I know. Second, Tormund promises no damage to this as he says bloody gate. And I just want to remind everyone that there is in fact a bloody gate in this story. It is formally named as such and it is in the veil. Yeah. And there's also the whole like, come in my bloody gate. Wait a second. Fuck. Come in my gate. I don't know. Come into my castle. So yes, there is. There is a bloody gate. Good reminder. Yeah. And there is a lot, we're going to come to this in a minute, but there is a lot of mountain imagery kind mm. of around Tormund. So I find that interesting. I really mm. do. So Tormund says that if John warns his Eastwatch men they are friend and not foe, his men won't accidentally attack the Night's Watchmen. I thought that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting reversal there. Yeah. And, and then this there's this beautiful, beautiful exposition passage. The sun had returned to the sky after a fortnight's absence, and to the south the wall rose, blue-white and glittering. There was a saying John had heard from the older men at Castle Black. The wall has more moods than Mad King Eris, they'd say, or sometimes the wall has more moods than a woman. On cloudy days, it looked to be white rock. On moonless nights, it was as black as coal. In snowstorms, it seemed carved of snow. But on days like this, there was no mistaking it for anything but ice. Mm. On days like this, the wall shimmered bright as a septon's crystal, every crack and crevasse limbed by sunlight as frozen rainbows danced and died behind translucent ripples. On days like this, the wall was beautiful. Ugh. You know, 
I think maybe it's just because I was getting really normalized with Pullman's kind of brief imagery from mm-hmm. our His Dark Materials readings, but there's something about a good GRRM porno, like the wall is wall shimmering porno. beautiful as a Septon's crystal. Like that to me, that is some porn. Like y'all got Pornhub, I got George R. R. Martin describing the wall. Your bloody gate. These are not the same things. Um, <laughs> so how clever do you think George felt when he sat there and he wrote, and to the south, the wall rose blue. Yeah, I think in that's one a good sentence. catch. That's yeah. a thing. As soon as I, I read, the wall rose blue, I was like, all right, George, you can't put blue and rose in a sentence. Not purposefully. Uh, I was looking at, like, the other things and other descriptions of the wall in this chapter where they keep talking about it being, like, black with, like, some of the cracks looked red or something. Mm. But I think that this, what you're saying, like, that one, definitely, definitely oh, something there. Oh, and at the, the end of the chapter, they talk about that. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that, to me, is almost very much so, like, fire and bloodish foreshadowing, exactly. right? Yeah. yeah. The black to red. Very much so. I think George is definitely... Digging into some symbolism here. Uh, He talks about, or it's said in this passage, the wall has more moods than Mad King Ares. It's really crazy that right now, as you read this, Danny and John don't even know about the other. Like, they don't care, don't know. But there's hints of them littered all over these chapters when you dig for it. When they do meet, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. You're going to be like, what? I think we're all going to be pleasantly, like, taken by this writing. I think it's going to be, like, slipping on your favorite slippers. It's going to be easy. A a nice pair of yoga pants. You know, that's how it's going to feel. It's just going to flow. It's going to be so easy and seamless. Like, I mean, these chapters right here have pretty much secured it. By the time he comes back, she'll have gone through a bunch more shit and burned a bunch of shit. But they'll be lonely gods. And they'll be like, hello, I love you. And, um... Why'd you make that noise? (laughs) I don't know what's happened to me, honestly. I really don't know what's gotten into me. But there's just so much of them littered everywhere right now. And also, silly colloquialisms, like, more moods than a woman, huh? Of course. The closed-minded, racist, sexist region says these things. Ugh. So annoying. And I I do think that that's there because it's very telling of how the realm is going to perceive Daenerys. Yeah. The realm who is not John, who's going to go, as you said, well, um, I stand by the idea that she's not going to go mad, but will be perceived as such by oh, yeah. you know, the way that Varys and others have been twisting the narrative there quite unfairly and, and because of the sexism in Westeros, right? As you pointed out, it's not a coincidence that the two of being mad as Ares and more moods than a woman or whatever are being equated here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's silly to call it madness, in my opinion, especially when George just put out, what, Fire and Blood that details a bunch of shit that we did not know before from, like, the Princess and the Queen expanding on it and adding more sides, adding more feelings and opinions. Like, was Rhaenyra mad? No. Did she make decisions that were very much so based on her isolation and loss in the end that may have been poor decisions? Yes, absolutely. Ares didn't overnight succumb to being mad, right? Like, it's very obvious why he was the way he was. He was traumatized and tortured and isolated, and he 
turned off. Like, he turned away from everyone. I think calling it going mad is kind of simplifying it, especially when we know that Daenerys has to hit, like, Volantis. She has to deal with Pentos. Likely has to deal with Karth, as you and I talk about. Um, yeah. And Marine. Uh, who knows what's going to happen there with Shave Paint Littlefinger just hanging around. And then she has to come home and find out, like, all of these traitors in her realm, including young Griff, there's a lot we're missing in the TV show Mad Danny shit that obviously we're going to see in the books that's going to change her. Um, that feeling of loss. I mean, the closest thing in season eight that could have come anywhere near that anchor is probably the Missandei loss. For me, that was like, oh, holy shit, I would burn shit if Missandei died. I could see that happening. But there's so much more to fill that space with that... There's no way to, like, call it madness when you have a whole book and a half of Danny just getting just dog-fucked by life, you know? Yeah, they're just, like, mad. Not mad. Yeah. Normal-ass mad. Like, she just needs, like, a Take 5 or a Snickers. <laughs> oh my god. I do love the- Okay, I do really like those Snickers commercials, I'm not gonna lie. I don't know why. They're so dumb. Know. They're so dumb. <laughs> so, then we have- Toreg Tormund's taller and eldest son, which is fascinating because turns out Tormund's actually not as tall as I would think he is, right? In the books, they portray yeah. him as a lot taller. He feels he's got tall energy, but apparently Toreg's real tall. He speaks with leathers near the horses. Um, horse, not an actual horse. <laughs> <laughs> I want to clarify this, is nearby as well. Back to them. And these are the two men that John brought with him to this parley. It's a big mistake that John only brought horse and leathers. Um, he might not realize it in his head. He obviously thought he needs to bring people that will be okay with torment, people that won't threaten torment, people he can trust around the free folk to, you know, chill and let him take the lead. But more men would have been threatening to bring more than two men, but he brought a boy from Molestown, and he brought Leathers, who Leathers is more northern than any guy at the Wall. John left the faction of Boomers at the Wall. And you know that's, like, the worst thing to do. They crave attention. Like, Bowen, Athel, Celador, like, that is their shit. Give them attention. John's not playing by the rules of these old, outdated politics, a lot like Ned Stark in the first book, and... John's gonna die for it, a lot like Ned Stark in the first book. Yeah. That is that is what happens in the first book, in fact. Yep. And you know, John doesn't think about any of this unwarranted protection because he's like, whatever. I also brought ghost. And he calls to him. Then at the same time mounting his horse, the raven flies to saddle screaming about corn. Turns out the raven has also followed him. Because oh, that's his home. <laughs> John, yes, John, his favorite tree. The raven's favorite tree. Ghost hasn't arrived yet at John's beck and call, but wait, here he comes here he with comes. Val! Every boy on the internet, their heart just broke because Val is killing it right now with this outfit <laughs> game. Her and Ghost were out there taking selfies in the woods. Oh they God. were putting their pictures <laughs> on with the Amparo filter, uh, the Nashville the oh, help me out here are there any other ones uh the i don't Crema? actually know the names of all the there's like a moon filter right which is just black and white i don't know what these are all called yeah the twitter one is stark i like that 
But Val is wearing white woolen breeches with white bleached leather boots and a white bearskin cloak. Eoric, no, with a weirwood face <laughs> pinning it to her shoulder. Her eyes are blue and her hair is the color of honey and her cheeks are pink from the snow. John's like, I have a boner. <laughs> you know, she's not as blonde as I thought in retrospect. It also is worth noting, you know, like, as you said, John, hard AF right now. But, like... John loved Egret so much because, like, we don't really talk about Val's appearance that much in Stormlight. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, yeah, she's cute. But, like, the entirety of, like, Storm, not the entirety of Storm, but, like, they're in each other's presence quite a bit. They scale an entire wall together. But he's only <laughs> really noticing her now. He's like, wait, I see you. I mean, I think he was a little depressed to notice that before. You know? Well, he was A, really into Egret. Then later on, yes, he was depressed. But now he's like, I'm sad and depressed, but also horny now. I mean, he's 16. Yeah. He does flirt back with her. And, you know, she looks like Queen Alisan. That's who she looks like with her coloring. Uh. So obviously Val is supposed to be this bridge to Daenerys for us, right? Like blonde and fiery in attitude. But... She looks like Queen Allie here with the blue eyes and the honey-colored hair and her cheeks all pink from snow. That's uh, very much so what I think of. The cheeks pink, I don't think this is something George is referencing, but I always think of the line or the moment in Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth Mm. has, what, traipsed across, like, the entirety of whatever to show up at, like, Darcy's door because she's, like, asking about something. He's like, wow, she looks so great. She's so unkempt, but look at all the blood and color in her cheeks or whatever Mm. well that's that's like a that's a common thing in a lot of pieces i mean you got like a lot of old youth fiction books girls pinching their cheeks Mm. for color in them rouges you know blushes that's true that's true i do like blush yeah for sure so john's flirting he's like you try to steal my dog and she's like yup but i'm gonna step on you too that was pretty much verbatim what she says yeah and Tormund laughs and he's like, Val is far too good for you and you better get stealing soon if you want her. John's like, in his head, he's thinking about what Axel said about her, that Val is nubile, she's pretty, good hips and breasts. And John's like, yeah, she does. She does have those things, but also she's more than that. She's more than just a birthing factory. Because, you know, men are really deep. And (laughs) (laughs) a man wrote these. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (sighs) Absolutely. A man wrote this chapter. She found Torment where seasoned rangers would have failed. She'd be a great wife for any lord, he thinks, but he he already sowed her fate (laughs) by denying her marriage to him. He tells Torment that Torag could have her. He swore a vow, unfortunately, but Torment says Val wouldn't mind him breaking his vows, and Val's like, yeah, uh, come try. (laughs) Yeah, and then pats her bone knife. She's like, Lord Crow's welcome to steal to my bed. And he not dares. Once he's been gelded, keeping those vows will come much easier for him. Oh my god. Val's on fire, for sure, yeah. in this episode. Yeah. Interestingly, you know, Val, flirtatious. Not as keen on John as we thought. Uh, well, not in she front was, of other people, Eliana. Come on now. Yeah, nothing turns guys on, like, threatening to castrate them. That's I what mean, I've learned. It's true. Uh, also, I just want to point out Lord Crow, great pun name 
very much props. Rhymes with snow. Amazing. So many meanings. Yes. <laughs> truly, truly a princess. A pun princess. Pun oh se- nope, Nope, not as good as I thought it was going to be. Do you think I, when John and Danny get together, it'll be pun-sessed all the time on this podcast? I think it really will be. And, you know, she's got great singers, too. Gonna yeah. throw it out there. And I think that's really what's gonna win John over. Yeah, he is attracted to that intelligence. I mean, and free thinkers, you know? He was out there like, Egret, I know you're voting third party this election, but Val asks how Monster is and what her sleeping arrangements are, and John's like, well, Queen Selyse is here, and you're going to have to stay in Harden's Tower now. Has a little less space, but, you know, no queen. And she says she'd choose freedom over comfort any day, but he warns her, you're still a captive. It's my men, though, that are guarding you, not Selyse's. Yes, John's very trustworthy men. Yes. Compassionate, really a touching sort of man. Yes. If I had to take a stab, I'd say that his friends are going to be closer than ever to him soon. Oh my gosh. Truly, truly they are. And they're going to get under his skin. And also <laughs> these comments about choosing freedom over comfort from Val. I, th- I just think it's an interesting running theme throughout A Dance with Dragons. Like It connects well with some of Tyrion's own thoughts and musings mm-hmm. about being a slave of Yezin Zokagas. I don't know who's right. You know, like... At least if you're alive, you have a chance at freedom, but that's a choice that at least... The fact is they're saying that that's a choice, I guess. That's open to people, right? Yeah. And I guess for some people, it's not a choice. Yeah, so it's well, kind that, of like survive. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Until like trying to make it because, yeah, anyways. Yeah. The, the removal of that choice is abhorrent, and I think mm-hmm. that's a big part of what George's books are saying. Yeah, I mean, at the very end of the day, we have a broad look at how the series is going to end. I think anyone that is reading these books in a critical manner or trying to, you know, do some comprehensive checkups on what they think of the story can kind of assume, like, this is a broad theme running through the story. Freedom over comfort. Sometimes comfort is bad, and sometimes you have to break some eggs to make an omelet, a freedom omelet. What? By eggs, Are we making I mean, an omelet out of eagle eggs? Anyways, so <laughs> Val and John are walking, and John's like, by the way, one one is sleeping in the entry hall, and it's really cute because Val's like, Dala couldn't even boast of that. Is this is this sisterly competition? Does anyone with a sister want to weigh in here? Because uh, we don't know, but yeah, what is it like? I don't know. Even from the dead, sisterly competition. Yeah. I mean, that must exist. Like, we see it in Stannis, right? He's all like, Renly. True. Must be. Must be a thing. John watches the faces peering out of tents. They walk through the camp. There's free folk, young and old. Ratio of like one to three to four. Men to women to children. All of them are gaunt and skinny things. And he thinks that this is no victory march. When man led the free folk, it was to glory. But now there are no animals. Everyone is starving. The Snuffleupagus with them would have been slaughtered if it were not for the lost giants. He sees sickness in the camps too, which disquiets him, and he wonders if the thousands of free folk Mother Mole has in Hard Home are also sick. 
This really stuck out to me, this read-through, especially with what Val's going to talk about later about Shireen and the Pale Mare flaring up in other chapters in A Dance with Dragons. And, of course, you have Fire and Blood, and you have many diseases talked about there, like the Shivers. There's a line in Fire and Blood. And then the Shivers came, and the stranger walked the land. Disease has hit Westeros many times, and Shivers has hit it a few times. Last during Jake and Allie's reign in 59 AC, yes, my cats, after a particularly bad wave of famine in a harsh winter, it starts with a chill and it gets so bad that the person that has it, their teeth are chattering and they're convulsing and by the end their lips turn blue and the victim begins to cough up blood. Are you sure it's not a hairball? Yeah, it doesn't sound good. Not good, guys. Daenerys, Jaehaerys, and Alysanne's daughter died of this and a lot of people took that to mean in the book that Daenerys would maybe die in the north, but I think it could be applied to the free folk here very easily, especially when you consider some of the dynamics during the Shivers outbreak in King's Landing, for example, and how they can be applied and remixed at the wall, since George does a lot of that sandbox story play, right? The Lord Commander of the City Watch at the time, Carl Corbray, dies of the shivers, and then some of his men die as well. It results in chaos in the city, and their master of coin, Lord Rago Draz, is murdered in the streets by starving people because, you know, kill the rich. But this shit killed everyone. It wiped out, like, half the small council, a bunch of the great lords, a quarter of the reach, a third of the citadel's maesters. I could see this hitting in the north, and it already has, right? We have some really dark things like cannibalism going on. The Pale Mare is running rampant through A Dance with Dragons. I mean, it's it's definitely going to be explored. Yeah, I mean, it definitely absolutely is. Like, It's something that George has been heavily hinting at, along with that idea of right starvation mm-hmm. and the other internal conflict. I. It's going to come up in a big way, I think, in Winds and in Dream. The show hand waved it away. Grayscale, it's just like mentioned too many times to show up. And as you said, there's the shivers we have. And you also mentioned like the pale mare. And I think, you know, the fact of the matter is this is something that happens in real life. And George is probably taking inspiration from that, like in places of conflict. Like you, this is a big part of why Ebola was able to like become such an outbreak amongst many other reasons right like ebola being highly contagious etc in places like the democratic republic of congo right they're places where there's like a bazillion different militias just roaming around scarce resources and people who are isolated from those other resources it makes it hard to get treatment and easy for disease to spread right like Mm -hmm. people are already kind of not in the healthiest form they can be and then you have the addition of like not everyone's aware that an epidemic is going on and then there's more fighting and it's like a whole cycle and then here in this world that George has created you also have magic ice zombies (laughs) and ice demons and it's all just gonna like like you thought you were stressed before yeah it's all gonna like come together and I think he's exploring how some of these you know, treating the treating the others, right, is just like another one of these many things with the added stressors of this is what human conflict looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So John oh. John thinks that Cotter Pike may be close to Eastwatch now with free folk aboard the ships. John's wrong, as we know, but he doesn't know that yet. And he turns back to Val, who asks how his talk with Tormund went. 
Ask me a year from now. The hard part still awaits me. The part where I convince mine own to eat this meal I've cooked for them. None of them are going to like the taste, I fear. You know, the beginning of that reminded me of the line from the show from Tyrion and Jon's conversation on doing the right thing. When Tyrion says, ask me again in ten years. I don't know, it stuck out. Yes, I, I also thought that was interesting. Maybe they got inspiration from this, but that's also like you, they have that they read, read the books. It's like, not what? that they haven't read them, it's just they don't understand them. Dude, they didn't know that Sam was a POV. I mean... Never gonna let it go. <laughs> the, another line that I was reminded of was this one in The Clash of Kings, uh, Brand 4, where... Drojan has this prophecy that he tells Bran of, You were sitting at supper, but instead of a servant, Maester Lewin brought you your food. He served you the king's cut of the roast, the meat rare and bloody, but with a savory smell that made everyone's mouth water. The meat he served, the phrase, was old and gray and dead. Yet they liked their supper better than you liked yours. And here in both, this part of like the meal that's cooked, the meal that's being served means news. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's just kind of interesting the way that that metaphor is carried through in both Bran and John's chapters. But also, speaking of Bran chapters in Clash, Chloe recently did a thing. Yeah, you know, I just did uh, the Harvest Feast over at Not A Cast Podcast. It was a blast. We had a feast ourselves. Um, it was not uh, the king's cut of the roast, per se, but... Oh, you know, yes. Pretty good. Cut. Did you notice that? that- yeah. Bran no, was didn't. served the king's cut of the roast. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, that's relevant. Mm. That's and it's relevant. interesting the way that's framed because obviously Bran's news that he gets is bad news, right? And the Freys are happy about their news, about their gross dead news. Uh, but he's unhappy about his, but that's the king's news. He was brought news that as a future ruler, he was supposed to handle. Interesting. Yeah, and also like it's the same thing here, right? Where the news that he got was theoretically good, but he doesn't like the taste of it. And I think that's kind of the same for the Night's Watchmen here too. But they can't; their palates are are not accustomed to this meal that John has prepared for them. Because I'm gonna be real, John's doing some good work here. You know, this is theoretically should be considered good news. I can see we see later on why they don't think it is, and they yeah. quite do not like the taste of this meal. I mean, it's good news and it passed the house, but it's never going to pass the Senate, Eliana. It sure isn't. <laughs> Another they're gonna topical veto, one. They're going to they're gonna veto John's life. Well, they don't veto. They're gonna, they, they have a really intense impeachment process. Oh it's God. called death. It's called... Impeach John Snow. That's actually... Oh my God. Wait, wait, I want I, that as a shirt. I also have something. I have something really crazy to say oh yes Stannis, i will go to my grave thinking of my brothers impeach so val wants to help out the watchmen more and john thinks this could be a great alliance everyone already thinks she's a princess <laughs> but he idiots. corrects those thoughts he's like a warrior princess he decided not some willowy creature who sits up in a tower brushing her hair waiting for some knight to rescue her shut the fuck up john Uh, or shut the fuck up george i don't know i don't know probably john silly it's like silly i think it's supposed to be shut the fuck up john because like george is like let's explore 
a bazillion different princesses and towers. Jansa is canceled, you guys. It's canceled. Get over it. It, it actually kind of is canceled. Kind of, yeah. Right? I mean, I, I mean, don't know. Uh, oh God, this is not the time, Eliana. No, uh, I mean, we don't know what their POVs think, right? I think there's going to be some weird, confused feelings. Doesn't necessarily mean there will be, like, Jansa confirmed action, but I think they're going to have some weird feelings about each other. I mean, they're both attractive young people. Let's be real. With weird yeah. resentments build up. Everyone's gonna have weird feelings towards everyone. Let's never, let us never forget the nineteen ninety three letter. My God. Um, but I mean, it's not as weird as boning your aunt. I think that's mm-hmm. the weirdest, most confused feeling you can feel. John has a lot of confused boners. He's having some right here. Anyways, John says he'll speak with Celise about it, and that and that Val is welcome to come if she feels up to kneeling. And then Val wants to laugh at Celise if, you know, she does end up kneeling. And John says, no, you, you really can't do that. That would deeply offend them. They're very thin-skinned, and, you know, they're actually the only ones who are okay with this plan of letting the free folk in the realm. Please do not fuck this up for me. Yeah, she's like, I'll play the part for your queen. And John thinks in this moment, Solis is not his queen. She's really Interesting. Interesting thought. They ride in silence with Ghost and the Raven following, and they arrive to men in black waiting to hear how the peace talk went. John tells his brothers that the free folk will pass through the wall as friends, some as brothers as well. He knows he must see the queen immediately, or she'd think it were a slight against her. So he plans to come back and write letters afterward. He says he'll need to summon the boomers, too. Marsh, Yarwick, Celador, and Clytus. Flint and Nori will also be invited to the shindig atop the wall at sunset. He and Val go on to meet the queen, and Val makes fun of the queen more, saying she has heard that Solis has a beard. Because, you know, women have fucking facial hair, Val. It's 300 AC. Anyways... Um, This might be like my one critique of the chapter is that George is spending so much time painting Celise as ugly by being like physically she's ugly. She has a mustache and she's just an ugly mean woman. And it's like we get it. She's very ugly on the inside. Right. Like I get that. She's very mean. Her actions are not nice. She's kind of a bitch. Right. Like you don't want to hang out with Celise. It doesn't sound fun. It's not for me. She's like literally Angela from The Office we talk about in my household. But uh, she she's just very uptight and mean and uh, grew up under all these Southern courtesies and uh, lessons and way to act. And you don't need to just outright highlight like, oh, she has mustache hair. She has a beard. She has this. Later, there's this line that, you know, Val says about Celise that Celise has more hair on her face than I do between my legs. Like, it, it it might be a critique of the chapter that George, there's definitely a lot more that Val could hate about Solis. I don't think Val would give a shit about what Solis looks like. And I noticed this over Christmas with some family members that, like, everyone has to be pretty. Like, oh, I don't like her. I don't think she's very pretty. Why does it fucking matter? You're not going to sleep with her. Like, it doesn't matter what Solis looks like. I don't know. It, it's a big critique of that character in general that she serves as a bad consolation prize to Stannis. That's Solis's role. Even though here in these very scenes she's getting her own characterization, she's very much so this accessory to Stannis's failure as the middle child who doesn't get the pretty wife like Robert and Renly. And I think that's a bummer because she could be more complex as a kind of villainous queen in here that she's, you know, against forging these new alliances. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's fine for her to be characterized as ugly on the inside and the outside. But as you were saying, like, as you were saying, like, it's weird that this is the only thing that Val is harping on. There's so much more. It's body. Like, You're telling me that a wildling, free folk, spear wife, badass can hold her own would say shit about someone's body hair? Really, George? Come on now, dude. You're such a dude. Also, there's no fucking way that uh, Val has less hair in her vag than Celise has on her face. Like, I'm just, like, that's not how that grows. It's really not. And also just, like, I mean, I assume that there are quite a few, maybe, like, hairy women among mm-hmm. the free folk and the wildlings. Like, uh, this yeah. seems like it would be a great boon. You're gonna be fucking cold. Yeah. Yeah. I so I have my legs nice and hairy right now for winter. Like, what the fuck? It's yeah. a medieval fantasy, though. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's, it's more likely, if anything, she would be critiquing Celise for what? Sitting, for for her demeanor, for being weak, even. I, I think it would be even sewing. more... Yeah, for sewing. It would be... Well, not sewing, because sewing is actually probably yeah, a valuable skill in terms of but... making clothing. But, like, I would, I could see her critiquing Celise absolutely for for being weak like that seems like something that would make sense yeah. culturally right that she couldn't even hold a spear it's just maybe really... she even makes maybe she even makes a joke right maybe there's a sex joke there of spears and stannises i don't yeah. know and that would be more make more sense to me than the constant harping on Celise's facial hair yeah i just feel like there could be other traits to harp on like the yeah. fact that Celise is trying to force val to marry people all the time or you know like this that and the other thing there's like a lot to work with, so I don't know. My one critique right. there—that's my uh, my negative for the day for the chapter. But yeah, John and jokes I mean, along about it anyways. So John's also on my shit list, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, and I mean, like, Slee's trying to marry people off. That's like what she thinks a queen is supposed to do, right? She's well, trying. and it is it is what queens do, but it's like she's not read great the at room. It. No, yeah, you're not good. That's the point. Read the room, and I mean the. Fact of the matter is, Stannis and Selyse don't have good options or connections. They're at the wall. That's where they are right now to try to make their stand for why Stannis yeah. should be king. It's not the best place to start, right? Yeah, their their now kiss moments are like worse than like everyone else's arranged marriages. They're like, I don't know, these these are two people. This shitty seventh cousin that we have somehow in our party, you can marry him and get nothing. Like, Yeah. And that's why they're there. They're there because there's empty castles that they can have. Um, and like we've talked about, it's very much so just like when Cregan went south and the Riverlands, you know, were very desperate and need to be resettled. Uh, there's a lot of that, but I don't know. There, there's just a lot that can be gleaned from this. But Solis is yeah. still very much so at Castle Black. She has not really been hasty in moving to the Night Fort. Uh, We're getting there. We're working at it. They approach her guarded tower with four men at the door, two inside and two in the steps. Patrick of King's Mountain leads and greets them, dropping to one knee, kissing Val's hand and telling her, Celise has spoken of your beauty. And Val's like, that's funny because I've literally never met this chick ever. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And then as Patrick's on the ground, then Val goes, up with you now, Sir Kneeler. Up, up. She sounded as if she were talking to a dog. It was all that John could do not to laugh. This is truly comedy. Thank you, George. Yeah, this is actually one of the better moments in this chapter. Yeah. Um, it, it goes to show that 
as much as the Night's Watch looks down on wildlings and free folk, clearly they look down on them too. They're like, y'all are dogs. And the Knights look down on them. <laughs> Ghost makes Selyse nervous. What is it with all these random-ass queens like being nervous around dogs? All right? I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> so... He leaves Ghost outside as they head in. Celise is sewing by the fire, and Patchface is dancing around, singing. I guess they're not dogs, they're wolves, whatever. The crow, the crow, under the sea, the crows are white as snow. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. I didn't come up with a tune for that. I'm sorry, everyone. It's okay. You could try again later if you want. I don't really care. (laughs) Basically, Patchface here, he's like saying, you know, they're going to be whites. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, it has like a double meaning too, right? I'm sure it's referring to John in some stupid sure. manner, Somehow. but very much so. And Shireen is curled up in the corner. She's got her hoodie up. You know how preteens are. Uh, Melisandre's not around. John and Val kneel to Selyse and he presents Val, telling her she was sister to Dalla. Selyse cuts him off and decides to shit on Dalla's memory, saying that, oh yeah, the chick that gave us this noisy ass baby... Uh, she says it's a good thing they got Val back before Stannis came home. Shireen asks if Val is the wildling princess, and Val's like, yes, my sister was Dalla, who was married to King Beyond the Wall, Mance. Yeah, Shireen is super pumped that there's another princess, because she's an only child, and like us, can't really relate to having a dead sister. Selyse interrupts her as she's talking about her cousin Edric and says that the Lord Commander doesn't want to hear of Robert's by-blows. Fucking finally. It's taken five books for someone to shut their fucking mouth about bastards in front of John. I'm just putting it out there. This is like the very first time where someone's like, oh, we don't talk about bastards in front of this boy. It would anger him. Uh, it is smart, cool courtesy, right? Calculating John's a bastard. Likely Celise thinks I don't want to say anything about bastards in front of him. But also, Selyse has pride for her king. Edric is literally the Bible product of the shame of their marriage bed. And also, shame to Selyse, who has not provided Stannis with an heir. Uh, all of this, obviously, is subtext. I am now adding to this story to give to you guys, since George refuses to write Selyse. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do think that John <laughs> would have appreciated at least maybe Shereen being like, I don't know, I really liked Edric. Right. Yeah, I mean, all it was the positive. Kids, affectionately speaking, like they all call him a bastard and say, like, "Oh, that's my bastard brother, John." Like uh, they don't think any different of it. It's just the way these kids were raised. Yeah, they're, they're innocent. Just like, well, be- partially, I don't know if Shireen's been like taught what it means necessarily mm-hmm. either. Like in the way Arya wasn't earlier for them, they're saying, "Yeah, he's my bastard brother." In the way that they're like, same way, he's a brunette. Mm-hmm. Wait, did you say the seed is strong? Um, I I didn't mean to. But I'm just saying. But it is. It really fucking is. (laughs) She sends Shireen off with Patchface, who sings, Come with me beneath the sea. Away, away, away. Thank you. I think that was really a good effort. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So the usual prophetic Patchface. That one reminds me of Old Town with the crumbling towers beneath the sea that Melisandre sees, right? Come with me beneath the sea, away, away, away. Away, away, away. Um, I I can see it. I can see it. Uh, I think a lot of people pointed out that 
when Patchface talks about things like under the sea or beneath the sea, whatever, in his songs, they're like that Patchface is like like referencing the afterlife or death, mm-hmm. especially the way it is. And I kind of wonder like, are Patchface's jingles like, what are what are you saying to Shireen? Like, come with me beneath the sea. Is this like a siren song? Are you inviting Shireen to come die with you? I mean, like she's gonna oh die, but maybe like not together. Is this supposed to be foreshadowing for Shireen dying? I mean, skulls and crossbones is what she sees around that guy, so. Yeah. Once the children, well, Shireen, and Patchface <laughs> have run off, John tells Celise that Tormund has accepted the terms. Celise says Stannis's wishes were to grant sanctuary to these, quote, savage peoples, unquote, and that if they hold the peace, they are welcome in the realm. Val is over there, too, and she's like, that's interesting that you call them savage. Did you know they have 200 giants and 80 mammoths? You know, just a humble flex. That's all. I'm not mentioning it for any reason right now. Yeah, she's, like, Selyse totally is... pissed. <laughs> I mean, understandably, because Selyse is like, they're dreadful creatures. Yeah. And she's like, at least they can help my husband in his battles. Right, like, in the same breath, she's like, I hate these horrible, awful, filthy creatures. And then she's like, that are going to win my battles for me. <laughs> Uh, kind of topical, but kind of like all the people that signed up for FAFSA, all the men that were automatically enrolled into the USA's blood oil wars, huh? Huh? We're gonna save your life and give you something valuable, but you also have to promise you'll die for us. Good luck. (sighs) Love it. John is like, so the good news for you is that the mammoths are too big for the gate, and we can't widen it, so no mammoths. Yeah, sorry, smile. uh oh, she's like surprised. She's like, oh, you're not going to widen it? He's like, yes. There are obvious reasons for why we wouldn't want to make the gate larger. You know, like the whole reason why I'm having this entire political conflict within the Night's Watch right now and with Northern Lords. And then, you know, no one gets it. He's like, I'm sorry, you wanted me to make the gate bigger and let more people through? And then later on, you know, maybe there's a threat, right, of undead mammoths. It makes sense. John makes sense. Oh my god. She is unhappy, obviously, to say the least, but she moves on and she's like, where are they all going to be settled then? And he tells her the abandoned castles will be the new home for them, letting them defend the wall. She thinks the places they're putting them to live in are garbage, but John rebukes her and he says even ruins can offer shelter and the wall from the others as well. Solis is like, sure, but they have to address Stannis as king forever. Also, Relore as their new fire Jesus. And John's like, whoa, 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 we didn't agree to those terms. Those aren't the terms we talked about there lady and Celise is like um don't really care the warmth vanishes from her voice yeah and John's like I know that trick too people say that my voice can be cold too anyways <laughs> free folk do not kneel Val told her then they must be knelt the queen declared do that your grace and we will rise again at the first chance Val promised rise with blades in hand Hell yeah. Waving that American flag. Freedom! Um, <laughs> when John is king in the north, because obviously we've just given in, we know what's going to happen. The free folk following him, that's so important. Like, the free folk don't just bend their knee to someone, and I don't think they'll want to bend the knee when Danny comes around, right? I mean, probably not. Probably not. They're, that doesn't seem like a thing that they'll be into. They'll be like, maybe, like, just because... She's involved with John. 
Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're very picky about who they choose. And like, obviously they want someone who respects their culture. And John clearly does, which is why he's like, hang on, we tried doing the whole conversion thing once. And A, that was terrible. B, that makes people not want to come mm-hmm. and join our side because right. it's racing their culture. Let's not do that. That's literally not part of the agreement. And Sleaze is like, okay, well, fine, whatever, but you're going to have to deal with Stannis later, and Val needs to be wed to a man who's going to teach her some courtesy and tells John that Stannis will make him answer for this on his return, and John begs for leave, and once again, out of earshot, Val is pissed. And I do think it's kind of funny that Sleaze thinks that, you know, being wed to a man will teach her courtesy, because as we've seen throughout this entire exchange, being married to Stannis has taught Sleaze absolutely no courtesy. Yeah. whatsoever she's just like super full of herself instead uh and this is where of course val says the line that Celise has more hair on her face than val has between her legs and then she moves on and she talks about shireen and her scaly ugly awful face that just screams death she says had she birthed shireen she would have given her the gift of mercy the child is not clean Val is super about that vaccine life, and no matter what John says regarding the Maesters or Stannis, none of it shakes her. Uh, she says, the Grey Death sleeps, only to wake again. John tries to argue his case, but Val says he knows nothing, which is the ultimate shut down, shut down John line because he gets PTSD and he stops talking. Uh, but she also says that she wants Monster out of that tower. The girl's as good as dead, even if no one else can see it. Well, she's not wrong. On that note, I mean, the girl is as good as dead, but <laughs> lamb for slaughter, just getting nice and uh, marinated. Ugh. Yeah. So, an aside, recently was talking about chicken pox and, of course, uh, shingles with people. And you can get shingles if you've had chicken pox before, which I mm-hmm. guess is maybe maybe that's what it's drawing from. Maybe that's why Val thinks that it can reignite. But I think I, I was too old and the sh- the vaccine came out just a little bit after I got chicken pox. So, anyways, yeah, I just missed it. I get you. I, I just missed it. Um, and I didn't know I had chicken pox and hid it from everyone, and was like, I don't know what's happening to me. Oh God, <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I was like, I'm so itchy. What's happening? Um, <laughs> Anyway, I, and I guess I just kind of contradicted myself here, but whatever. The point is, I'm not convinced that Shireen is the reason for a grayscale outbreak. Because, like, I mean, I think this is, like, meant to warn us a little, and maybe there's a bit of a red herring there. Because some people suspect it's Shireen, but I think it's going to probably be John Connington somewhere mm-hmm. or something. Oh, yeah. Like, he seems like a very, very great patient zero. He's very... Oh, yeah hasty now that he's on a timeline and has he's got goals and i think that rather the hate that val shows towards shreen here because we know that shreen's a very sweet cinnamon bun is meant to show us that the free folk just like the people south of the wall maybe they have their own prejudices against things it's not quite we we see it a little with torment right but yeah maybe that's what this is i don't know yeah and to be fair most of their prejudices are uh true but <laughs> I mean, it might not uh, be one, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and so I uh, something that I've really thought for a long time is that Val is going to have something to do with Shireen's death. Maybe not directly, maybe indirectly. Um, I think that when Celise leaves for the night fort 
I mean, she very much so has enough people and manpower, and especially with John not being there to help her, to take Val with her one way or another, right? Uh, I can imagine them forcing her to marry off and all the chaos. We'll see. But if she's at the night fort with them, I really do think she'll be a player in burning Shireen, even if it's only her words that help condemn her. Even just that walk through the camp and seeing the sick free folk. I don't know. I had a funny, weird thought of like, what if... What if everyone starts getting the shivers or something similar or the pale mare and Val blames Shireen somehow for it and they believe it. And that's a factor somehow. I don't know. There has to be something because Val has to be involved somehow and maybe not directly, but I could see her being an encouraging factor. Yeah, for sure. Especially like because what's at threat is like Val tells John to bring her monster mm-hmm. and strides off. And John's like, okay, I need a cup of wine to deal with this day. Mm-hmm. It's not done yet. Because yeah. now he has to go deal with, as you say, the boomers. But like when, when <laughs> Val says for John to bring monster, she's like, bring me my monster. She says, bye. And I'm like, Val loves monster. Oh, Yeah. She says she's, she's not fond of him, but everyone's like, we see you. We see through your Sundari <laughs> act. He travels up the winch with leathers, wind roaring through the cage, passing by, saying hello to the sentries standing guard. And I did love this. Owen and Ty are who are standing guard, and they're covered in their winter wear, head to toe. He can barely see them, but he still knows who they are by the way they are standing. His lord father had told him and Rob once that they have to know their men. So there's Ned's lesson still echoing. John looks off the edge of the wall down where Mance's host had been defeated, and wonders if Mance had found Arya yet. He thinks about what she would look like now, and remembers what she used to look like, dirty-faced with her skinny sword that Micken forged for her. He hopes that she's used it on Ramsay, if rumors of his viciousness have been true. Yeah, I do stand by theories that he won't know what Arya looks like, um, A, because now she's a faceless man, but also... I, I think his memory of her will be foggy, and I do think that I I think we're gonna see something like sad of him mistaking Jane for Arya. I hope uh I hope to see how that goes. I mean, I just wonder about the crossover because if we're not gonna get John till what like a quarter of the way in the book at the earliest, mm, a lot's gonna true. happen. A lot's gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe he doesn't mistake her, and it's just like while he's gone, maybe the go- ghost as the dog is like. I know it's not you, but I'm gonna just chill and like I'm in so- and John's here too and I don't know. How who knows? Maybe she shows up wearing another face to, you know, see who these people are now. Oh, I thought I thought I was talking about Jane. Oh, I'm talking about Arya, I'm sorry. Uh, I think you're Jane. Maybe it's the same person. I don't know, I'm joking. Fuck. <laughs> So Arya's not the only family that he thinks about. He starts thinking about Sam, and he thinks that Sam made a very cruel joke when making him commander. To crown him is to kill him. Sure is. But also, John thinks in this moment that a lord commander has no friends, and I think that's awfully close to a lot of the issues that overshadowed Danny's storyline, especially here in Dan's ruling Marine. And it starts off at the end of Storm, where she thinks as she looks over the city, like, do all gods feel so lonely? Mm-hmm. And how leadership has that very isolating effect. Yeah, and no trust. Ugh. Yeah. The cage draws up, 
Flint and Nori are on it. Bowen Marsh comes next, then Athel Yarwick, then Septon Selador, who's already half drunk. John has them walk with him and tells them in three days' time, at dawn, the gate will open to Tormund and his people, and that they have lots to prepare for. They aren't enthused. Othel Yarwick starts to say that thousands of them are coming through, and he was likely going to say something completely awful and racist, and John interrupts him and he's like, Thousands of scrawny wildlings who are bone-weary and hungry. Yes, they are coming through the gate. Well spotted, Othel Yarwick. Uh, Bowen Marsh, who has, in his opinion, never been wrong in his entire life, is like, actually, it's 4,000 if we were going to be exact, John. And he cites Dennis Malister's letters. There are more of them living in camps in mountains beyond the Shadow Tower. Yeah, I do appreciate that, uh, to an extent, like, at first Bowen's, like, maybe it's more like 3,000 looking at the fires, because I wouldn't be surprised if Tormund was inflating their numbers. It would not be surprising to me. All the other kingdoms do it. Dorn and their number of spears is a really good example, especially as they try and get Daenerys on their side. I mean, truly, like, you're just, like, looking out at a big crowd of lots of tents of people and guesstimating. Let's be real. Yeah. Like, they're not going to go around counting every person in their army every day. Yeah, also I guess in retrospect it would probably be better for Tormund to lower his numbers and be like, no. There's only this many That's of true, us. element of surprise. But, that's the other thing John says, right? Like, when you have a certain amount of Night's Watchmen against a certain amount of Wildlings, like, the free folk don't fight as organized as uh, the these gentlemen, these upstanding gentlemen of the Night's Watch. Yeah. So... John tells them that the Weeper, though, is going to try the Bridge of Skulls again. And that is where Bowen Marsh got his face scar. He asked John, so, like, do you mean to let him through? And John's like, I don't want to, but I will. Yeah, John thinks of the men that the Weeper had killed, those three heads, Black Jack, Hal, and Garth, and how he can't really avenge them, but he'll never forget their names, which, of course, Ned taught him that, too. John says peace means peace for all in his books, and they all eye roll and they hate him. And old Flint is like, my dungeons are peaceful. I'm going to take the Weeper to my dungeons. And then he goes on to say that the Weeper has raped or stolen or killed three of old Flint's kin and says the Weeper blinds the woman that he does not take. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, we saw what he did believable i think that um you know john really thought that his talks with the flints and the noise i kind of wonder did he really feel that this was gonna go a lot differently i mean yeah. the weeper the weeper is someone that we haven't really seen much in person which is interesting he's basically the ramsey or euron of beyond the wall and I, i'm not joking about that like i think that george has this weird thing where he tends to characterize how evil a character is by their yeah. propensity for sexual assault we see that first with joffrey and of course we see that with ramsey and euron yeah. so and i mean it makes sense i guess to an extent of like that's how he thinks he can show this kind of villainry and trauma best you know what's the thing that george thinks is the most villainous but I don't know. It's a little much. And I do think John thought his talks with the Flints and Norries would go differently. And you see that when he tries to pull the Ned card later when he says that he yeah. is Ned's son and they don't say shit. And he's like, oh, well, that didn't work. 
<laughs> they like completely gloss over it. They just like move on entirely. Yeah. John reminds them if the free folk take the black, they get to be reborn just like the rest of them. The jellical the choice. <laughs> Yarwick says that the men that follow the weeping man would do not trust him and would never take the black, and he would not either. John tells him, You don't need to trust a man to use him. Who knows the wild better than a wild thing? The men aren't convinced. Marsh is commenting that past the wall, they have three times the watch's numbers. Easy, you can count the watch on one hand, just putting it out there. And that's Tormund's group alone. Add the Weeper and Hardhome, and they could take the watch in a night. They begin to argue. John says there are sickly children and women in this camp by hundreds and thousands. And Septon Selador is like, we should just go pray about it. <laughs> Uh, Flint and Nori don't want the free folk to come near them either. They're like, they better stay off my lands. Yeah, John tells them, well, they're going to be garrisoning the abandoned castle soon. (laughs) He's like, I've got a plan. I've got a plan for all of this. He's like, men with wives and children. All right. And then we're going to have orphan girls. We're going to have orphan boys. We're going to have old women. We're going to have widowed mothers. And women who don't care to fight will be in some of those other castles along the wall. He's like, the spearwives are going to join their sisters in Longbarrow. And we're going to put the single men in some of these other forts we've opened. John's like, I've thought this through. Those who take the black are going to go to Eastwatch, Shadow Tower, or stay here. And Tormund will take Oakenshield to stay close. He's like, I got this. <laughs> you know, it's funny because there's... An Oaken Shield in the south in the Reach in the Shield <laughs> Islands. So there's two Oaken Shields in Westeros, and I am so proud. Get ready. Oaken Shield's actually a Lord of the Rings reference. I knew this one, by the way. I knew this. Can you believe it? I can. He's, I can believe it. So Tormund's uh, Oaken Shield is named for Thorin II Oaken Shield, who was king under the mountain or the mountain king. So back to that mountain imagery with Tormund. And Thorin leads the alliance of men, dwarves, and elves, all united as one in the Battle of the Five Armies. So that's kind of like straight up a Tormund reference, right? Like Tormund's going to lead an alliance. He's going to lead armies together of, you know, the free folk and the northerners and other people. And the Dothraki, the giants. Yes, all these, all these different characters. Yeah, so I'm I'm a I thought that was a cool reference. I can't wait to see that happen in real time. Yeah, I think that's a good count. I never noticed that there were two Ogan Shields. I honestly realized it because I was like, wait a second, isn't Ogan Shield in the re- Oh, it's an abandoned castle too. Yes, there's a southern and a northern one. I mean, that makes sense cuz like It's like when you of- got like streets, South Street North exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like places that have the same name. Yeah. Marsh is like, all right, cool. Well, what about their food consumption? Because we're all gonna starve. We don't even have butter anymore. Johnny doesn't say it, but he's thinking it. John also has a plan for that, and he lies about it. He's gonna bring food through Eastwatch allegedly by ship from all over Westeros. You know, uh, they go through each place where he wants to buy food from, which is every region. And I think it's like very obvious that Sansa's going to be bringing food home that Littlefinger's been withholding, right? Like to the north. Like hopefully she'll leave some for the people left in the Vale to survive winter. Uh, but yeah. they literally are the only place that will have grain once the Reach gets their assholes handed to them from Euron and maybe from Daenerys later as well. 
Yeah, because Littlefinger's been stockpiling it all for his bad Dick. reasons. I, to an extent, kind of wonder, though, why does John feel the need to lie about taking a loan from the Iron Bank? Well, because I don't think he's supposed to. That's true. But, I mean, I just don't know why he would think that was worse I... than telling everyone that we're going to try and pay it with the baubles that we're taking from the free folk. Like, a loan from the Iron Bank sounds way more plausible. It does, and I think Marsh might actually have even... He'd either have accepted it, or, like, straight 50-50 shot. It was either going to be like, good call, I accept this, or it was going to be like, dude, fuck you, John, you fucking traitor. And let's be real, it was always going to be the second option. But He's just uh, a contrarian. I think he just doesn't like any of John's decisions, just because of John. Absolutely. Uh, And, I don't know, it's not that bad, but it is. It's still political. Like, it's still very, very political. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, John does tell them that they're going to use the free folks' riches to pay for food. And Nori says, okay, so those riches are going to buy a bushel of barley corn at most. <laughs> and Clytus is like, well, we could ask them to give up their arms. And Lothers, as we all know, who is of the free folk, laughs at that and asks, well, how do you expect to fight alongside them then? And John gives a basic history on the weaponry of the free folk. Yes, most free folk carry weapons that are barely more than your basic club or stick. Axes, mauls, spears, bone knives, and stone and dragon glass weapons, he notes. And I never noticed that uh, till this read. That's an interesting thing that pops out to me, that some of them are coming with dragon glass. The Thens work with bronze, and their raiders, like, the and the other raiders, like Weeper... Uh, steel, kneeler weapons, swords off of corpses, but all these weapons are usually shoddy at best. Yeah. I'm so furious. I've started playing Breath of the Wild. Yeah. And why can't I have my, like, a weapon that fucking works for a long amount of time? (laughs) I'm just fighting everyone with, like, random clubs that I'm finding everywhere. They break after, like, four hits. I'm so annoyed. That's that's I do this. hate that about Breath of the Wild when your branch breaks, especially oh when you're like in the middle of fighting God. something, um, like when you're just trying to hit a animal and get their meat, you know, and then when they run my, and you're like, no. When my actually good fucking swords break, and I'm like, what is even the point of having nice things? All right, maybe I'm there's just symbolism. Not have you should nice Google things. it. Is there? I don't know. I don't know. What does a broken sword symbolize, Eliana? Yeah, it can be reforged allegedly. Whatever. Alexa? I don't know. But apparently it can't. That's what I found out. Anyways. Game of Thrones, season four, two swords taught me it could be. Anyways, John says Tormund would never disarm his people because that would be betraying their trust. The other men distrust Tormund's oath to stay out of their lands, Flint and Nori. Septon Celador then calls them savages again, but Leathers pipes up again to stand up for them and... Leathers needs a big shout out. I, I don't know if I've appreciated Leathers as much as I should have. Go Leathers. Yeah, throughout like the he's been really great the past few chapters. Uh, and duh. here, the patience of a saint, as he constantly listens to these guys like call for the eradication of his people over and over. Like Yeah. How he hasn't started wailing on anyone. Truly. And he gives them the this grace. awesome mini speech that's very, like, to me, it was just a impassioned little speech where he tells them, I was on the other side once, but now I'm your brother. Like, just like many of these people, I'm not savage, 
right? I'm no more savage than you guys. These people have families and gods, the same gods that Winterfell worships. Yeah, though I kind of wonder, like, Leather should have just gone for it, right? Yeah. Not the gods in Winterfell. He should have been like, the same gods you keep. I know we have the same religion, Flint and Nori. And John kind of tries to, like, say that by saying the gods of the North. But I think that, you know, it. Salador, every few moments, keeps trying to be like, let's all have a prayer. And I'm just like, why doesn't Leather do that? He's like, why don't we all go say a prayer together? And truly, like, places like the Weirwood are holy. Like, even if you don't worship those gods, like, haven't you ever walked by a place that you don't worship and been like, what a beautiful building, like, full of spirituality? I don't know. It's just really stupid. What closed-minded assholes. Uh (laughs) Or, or here's an idea. What about to appease Flint and Nori, because you cannot tell a lie in front of a Weirwood, allegedly. Why don't they have... And I mean, like, the free folk who choose to join the Watch, right, would would say their oaths in front of a weirwood anyway. But if they, like, did an oath of, like, yeah, I'm not going to fuck shit up in front of a weirwood, in front of Flint and Nori, like, that's an well, idea. unfortunately, now they have to say their oath in front of a pile of twigs on fire, so. Well, shit. <sighs> John I'm sure says Flint and Nori have trees. Yeah. That's true. If you join the watch, too, I guess you can do whatever you want-ish. John says that Tormund swore by those very gods, and Tormund will keep his word. John marched with him once, in case you forgot. And in case you forgot, that was the wrong thing to say, <laughs> lol. Because Bowen Marsh is like, oh yeah, God. that's the issue, John. We know you marched with them. That's why we're like, the fuck? Mance Raider swore an oath as well. That's, I don't know if that's my Bowen Marsh voice. I'm sorry, Bowen. Marsh went on. He vowed to wear no crowns, take no wife, father no sons. Then he turned his cloak, did all those things, and led a fearsome host against the realm. It is the remnants of that host that waits beyond the wall. Broken remnants. A broken sword can be reforged. A broken sword can kill. The free folk have neither laws nor lords, John said. But they love their children. Will you admit that much? It is not their children who concern us. We fear the fathers, not the sons. Oh, so much to unpack right there. This is interesting because it's like, it's a couple of different conversations. Mm-hmm. It's the conversation Ned had with Robert about Danny, almost. Right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Very much so. A broken sword can be reforged. A broken sword can kill. And... It also reminds me of some like major foreshadowing of what's to come. Of course, all of this is sandwiched by John telling them he's taken hostages, much like what Daenerys is doing in Marine, and likely mm-hmm. both groups of hostages might not fare so well, like with life. Um, but some of that foreshadowing in there might be what's to come between Danny and John. They talk about Mance. He turned his cloak, did all those things, led a fearsome host against the realm. She loves her children. Will you admit that much? We fear the fathers, not the sons. I just think there's so much to unpack in this little passage about possibly Daenerys and Jon's relationship moving forward, Jon mm-hmm. leading her armies. Um, a lot going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the show... The HBO award-winning television show. Uh, Use some of that language, right? And I don't think that they were necessarily wrong for 
for that. I I think that was something that we are going to see. Yeah, the sins of our in, fathers. In, yeah, in probably better language, but yeah. yeah, same same ideas literally. Hopefully, better language. I'm hoping. Yeah. You know, the speech actually. Uh, poor Quentin and I were just chit chatting about this. That the speech has a JFK reference in it as well. Uh, the JFK commencement address at the American University in DC in 1963. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For, in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. Yes. That's what he's trying to do here. And John, in that in that vision, has taken 100 hostages, a son from each chief, between the ages of 8 and 16, and then the rest, chosen by the free folk. They will serve the watch to help open up resources, and some may stay and take the black eventually, but the rest will stay to prove their sire's loyalty. <sighs> Tormund called this John's blood price, and Flint actually seems favorable of this. He says, in the North, we call them wards, but we obviously all know it's a hostage thing. Yeah, and he, like, literally says, okay, yeah. We're familiar with that. These are hostages. And it, he's, like, favorable because he's familiar with it, because for what it's worth... When Flint talks about these hostages, they're like they were held by Winterfell of the Flints and the Norries, these wards. And which goes to show that despite all the ways that we're told that the Starks were beloved by the North, mostly through John's point of view and, you know, some of the other Stark children as well, there might not have been as much love as we think, right? And we see it also to an extent through Catelyn's POVs as she sees people serving John serving Rob, but like it explains why all this pageantry of john and leathers parading the symbolism of winterfell and being constantly like yeah edward strikes blood through flows through my veins like as you're saying earlier like it doesn't move the noise or the flints are like eh, whatever they don't talk about it all at all and mm -hmm. along with that it casts some light on a couple of things such as like why ned might have been reluctant to send out his own children as wards because he's like i know this this is a trick his own wardship was pretty happy enough, but maybe he knows, like, I was pretty lucky. Alright, I was the exception. Wards are hostages. And it shows why Lysa was so fearful of her child being taken by, like, either Stannis or Tywin, even mm -hmm. though Lysa was immensely distrustful and her paranoia was, like, totally stoked by Littlefinger. We see it with Marcella, right? Being a ward to the Dornish. Cersei interprets it as a hostage situation and like it's not true it's not entirely untrue. Arian does crazy shit with with her ward. And lastly, like what the Flint and the Norris say of wards actually leads credence to Theon's grudge about being a ward of Winterfell because, you know, we debate whether or not Ned would have killed Theon. Probably not, but it doesn't change that Theon himself knew what this wardship meant and that he felt unsafe being a hostage because there literally is a history of northern lords fearing that some lord stark maybe not ned stark but a lord stark would follow through on the threat john when talking about the wards that were sent to winterfell says none were the worst for it but nori interjects and says no the ones who displeased the kings of winter came back short ahead this is a northern tradition 
and established practice in Westeros. Yeah. So um, I mean, and obviously, Ned was kind of like, "Lol, no one's leaving the house ever," because that's what happened the last time a Stark left Winterfell, which was Lyanna to go do shit. You know, like I mean, that's that's obviously really tough, but. Like you said, he turned out fine. He went to the Eyrie and turned out better for it. Uh, Brandon Stark was in Barrowton at Lord Dustin's. You know, uh, Edric Storm was passed around between Renly and Stannis like a basketball. There, there's so many different, <laughs> uh, so many different fosterages in history, and I mean, Theon's is a little different because obviously. It was a punishment. It was, you know, for good behavior, making sure that they behaved. But Theon felt that. He felt that on him, like, every day of his life. I think that's a really great call out in general that, you know, not everybody worships the Starks. And you see it in the same book from Barbary Dustin, who, yeah, yeah, she worshipped them until she couldn't anymore because she couldn't be one. I think it's when you, there's something that you were saying and pointing out here regarding Brandon Stark being award to to Barrowton. there's that power dynamic right like mm-hmm. of the wards like if you're a lord paramount your wardship probably isn't a hostage situation because you hold more of the power but for vassals it's different yeah so they asked john uh money where your mouth is if the time comes Flint and Nori are like, are you able to kill your buddy if the time comes and they have not honored the peace that you want to bring? Which, uh, interesting question. Interesting question. And John is doing that thing between all this where he's thinking. He's been doing that throughout the whole book, you know, where he like thinks one thing, says another, and he thinks in his head, ask Jano Slint very darkly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know who doesn't do that? Celise. I'm pretty sure she says exactly what she's thinking. And, like, yes, we know John could do it for Janos. He's learned his lesson from the last time he said, Yes, I've done this thing before, like, regarding a fight, you know, earlier. He's like, Yeah, I fought alongside them in case you've all forgotten. And this time he's like, I'm not going to remind them about Janos Lint. That seems like a bad move. And,. Yes, he can do it for Janos. Could he do it for Tormund? I don't know. And this, of course, will later on evolve into a question like, will he be able to do it when it's his queen? Yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Stick him with a pointy end or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. John responds to Nori and he says, Tormund Giant's Bane knows better than to try me. I might seem a green boy in your eyes, Lord Nori, but I'm still a son of Eddard Stark. Oh. Nori! Except you're not. <laughs> yeah. And also Lord Nori looking into the camera. Yeah. No one says shit. Like, that did yeah. not work. Sorry, John. Didn't work. Yeah. Lord Nori, what is he thinking on the inside? What is he darkly thinking inside and not saying Right this loud? second, you know what Nori is thinking? He's like, that little motherfucker, that Brandon Stark, I left him some goddamn oat cakes. <laughs> Ungrateful little fuck. Those Starks. I'm just kidding. Uh. <laughs> uh, so Marsh is unhappy that John is implying he's gonna have these free folk kids trained at arms. And finally... The dragon comes out of John. He 
tells him, he's like, I'd rather they be useful instead of standing around fucking, like, just, like, making frilly things all day. Idiot. I want them to tend to stables and chamber pots and churn butter and learn to fight. And this passage butter! is so good. It's, it's so, so important. Good. It's like, the we butters- have to read it. We will read it. I just want to point out, John's like, the butter's so important to me. <laughs> Dude, how could you live without it? I agree. Marsh flushed a deeper shade of red. The Lord Commander must pardon my bluntness, but I have no softer way to say this. What you proposed is nothing less than treason. For 8,000 years, the men of the Night's Watch have stood upon the wall and fought these wildlings. Now you mean to let them pass? To shelter them in our castles, to feed them and clothe them and teach them how to fight? Lord Snow, must I remind you you swore an oath? I know what I swore. John said the words again for the 80th time in this <laughs> chapter. Literally. I am the sword of the darkness. I'm the watcher on the walls. I'm the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. Were those the same words you said when you took your vows? They were, as the Lord Commander knows. Are you certain that I have not forgotten some? The ones about the king and his laws and how we must defend every foot of his land and cling to each ruined castle? How does that part go? John waited for an answer. None came. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Those are the words. So tell me, my lord, what are these wildlings if not men? Bowen Marsh opened his mouth. No words came out. A flush crept up his neck. Jon Snow turned away. Chills, dude. Get him. Get him, Jon. Get him. It was good. It was good. Jon finally got him. It doesn't really get through to to, to a lot of them, but he got him. As soon as I, like, reread that today, I was so inspired. I was like, his power. The power. Everyone's speechless. Shut him down! Fuck him up, John. I don't know. Maybe it's because I just came from Christmas that was really tense because, you know, like, white people. And um, I don't know. Like, I'm sitting there like, man, I wish I could have gone off like that at Christmas, dude. Thanks, John. John, an inspiration. Totally. And as he lets, lets the silence of the mic drop last for a bit, the sun has begun to set, and John thinks that Melisandre will be praying to her fire soon, chanting, The night is dark and full of terrors. He finally breaks the awkward silence surrounding that sick Targaryen burn with some House Stark ice coldness. And he's like, Winter and the White Walkers are coming. The Wall needs to be the last place that the White Walkers come to. And to do that, we need men. Tormund has men. Do the math. So he orders Clytus to tend to the sick and injured and to save as many as he can. He charges Othel with readying cart and wagon for transport, and he tells Bowen to collect the tolls, sort them, count them, and make sure they get shipped out and get to Eastwatch. So I just want to say, as far as we know, right, Clytus is not one of those who participated in the mutiny at the end of John's life. And in this moment, when he agrees to John's decree to nurse the sick from Tormund's men, Clytus responds with, I will do my best, John. My lord, I mean. And I think that John kind of somewhat got through to him because, like, here he says, yeah, he says John, 
not my lord at first, and I think that's him seeing John for who he is, for the boy he is, but not in a bad way, but for the boy who's trying to do something, not this adversarial Lord Snow, because like, you know, back then, when people connected with him, they used to call him John, and all of these people who are like, pretty bad at John keep calling him like, Lord Snow, Lord Commander, whatever, and I I think Clytus, he got through to him. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. Uh, well, so John did nothing but make political mistakes through this chapter, right? Like, yes, you and I were like, nope, that was wrong. Nope, wrong. But he did something really good. Too little, too late. But he actually was managing really well. He reached through to Clytus, like you just noted. He gives Bowen the quote unquote harder task, the one that uses more responsibility, right? All the very, very, very important treasures. He wants Bowen to collect the treasure. He wants Bowen to ship the treasure. He's making Bowen feel more self-important here. And he's trying to instill trust and respect, even though the relationship is quite obviously strained beyond repair right now. Uh, he gives Othel the charge of readying carts and wagons. And when we first meet Othel, he's first builder in a Game of Thrones, right? He almost was the Lord Commander. He His name was up in the running. John is speaking to Othel's prowess in building to establish these carts and wagons and ensure that they are safe and ready for transport. But the problem is that it's John that did this. He's just a smart-ass punk little bitch. So it's like, they're, like we said earlier, they're not going to like what he does ever. It's not going to change, right? Like it's not, there's right now the only thing that could stop them from being mad at John would be like if he turned around and said, you know what, you guys, you're right. I'm going to tell Tormund. He should just turn around and go home. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's the literally it. That's it. That or, or you know, Jeremormont coming back from the dead and being like, you know what? I agree with John. I like these. Yeah. I think those are the only two things that would work. <sighs> but, alas, it is not going to happen. So they each agree to their tasks, though semi-reluctantly. For a couple of them, uh, Clytus is the only one that kind of willingly was inspired to go. And then we have the closing quote, which is very good. Very, very good. And John thought, ice, she said, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard and naked steel. His sword hand flexed. The wind was rising. <laughs> yep. Chills. Chills from the winds of and winter. The, and the ice. Oh my god. <laughs> if ever. If ever. Uh, well, you really gotta hand it to this chapter. Yeah. Sword hand flex. Yeah. Sword hands. Oh my god. Um, <sighs> yeah. So, a dense John chapter. All foreboding, especially with this last line of like, what's gonna happen at the end of the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you're so close, John. You get that something bad's gonna happen, but it's like you can't quite put your finger on what it is. I mean, he kind of knows, which is why the entire rest of the pe- past few chapters, he's just been like, if you hate me, then just kill me. Just do it. He's, like, burying his chest. Yeah. 
He's been it's like, a... they killed the last Lord Commander. Well, you guys. I don't know, man. Uh, I'm worried. I'm really worried about this guy. Like, what do you think? Do you think he's going <laughs> to die? Yes. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait another week to find out what happens to Jon Snow. <laughs> oh in uh, next week's Dragon Ball Z. Yes, next week on the penultimate episode of Jon Snow. <laughs> Our theme song. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> well guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We're really happy to be back in the new year. New us. Just kidding. Same us. New year, new us. Uh, if you guys have enjoyed today, reach out. Send us a quick message on social media, either a tweet, a direct message that's at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N, or girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes. And of course, keep up with us. Keep up with what happens to John. By subscribing, you can find us on Podbean, on iTunes, which might be called Apple Podcasts now, and Chloe corrects herself every time, thank god. Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever else people have decided to add us on to. Yes, all of those. And if you haven't, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We have tiers starting at $1, so if you have a little extra change in the pocket, burning a hole in your wallet, shake it at us. And hey, patrons get a special episode for $5 and up patrons every month. Yes, and this month it's going to be about the Maiden Vault. Yes, very excited for that. Thank you again for tuning in to us, you guys. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.